welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. Enduring Interest is sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. My guest today is Jacob Howland, and we'll be discussing Yevgeny Zemyatin's novel, We. Jacob Howland is McFarland Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of Tulsa, where he taught from 1988 to 2020. He's the author of many books, most recently Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. I've known him as a scholar of classical philosophy for a long time, but a few years ago I noticed he started publishing wonderful essays on the phenomenon of totalitarianism, on Vasily Grossman, one on Nadezhda Mendelstam, and now he has one on Zemyatin's We, published in the March 2021 issue of The New Criterion. For more information about Jake's writings, listeners should go to his website, jacobhowland.com. Jake, welcome to The Enduring Interest. I'm really glad to have you here on the podcast and have been looking forward to talking with you about Zemyatin's We for a long time. Oh, it's really great to be here, Flag. So why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction uh, to Zemyatin himself uh, and, and maybe to the publication history of the novel, and then we will uh, get into the, the themes of the novel too. Good. Well, Zamyatin was born uh, in the early 1880s. I think it was 1884. And like most educated people of his generation, he supported the Bolsheviks. In fact, he joined the Bolsheviks uh, before 1908 and, in fact, was sent to Siberia under the czars in 1905 for his political activities. This, of course, puts him in a long and august tradition. I mean, Dostoevsky was also sent <laughs> to Siberia <laughs> for his political activities, and, and he was a revolutionary early in his life. Zamyatin, interestingly, was a, a naval engineer, and he designed the first Russian icebreakers. And in fact, he went to England in 1916 to make icebreakers. And, and while there, you know, he learned English and he wrote a satirical novel called The Islanders, satirizing English life. And that was published in Russia in 1917. He quickly became disillusioned, as, as many others um, who had supported the revolution did, like Osip Mandelstam, the great poet, with the Bolshevik project. And in, in, in 1920, so that's 100 years ago, he wrote the manuscript of We!, now, that was not published in the Soviet Union until 1988, uh, but it was published in an English translation in 1924 and in Czech in 1927 and then later in French. And writing that novel and expressing himself publicly as an opponent of censorship and an advocate of free speech got him in a lot of trouble. And he became the victim of a kind of campaign of persecution. In fact, he wrote a letter to Stalin, which incredibly succeeded in its purpose, which was to get him exiled in 1931. And in that letter, he described... Uh, exiled rather than executed? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Isaac Babel ended up with a bullet in his head, O.C. Mandelstam, 
died in the trash heap of the gulag in 1938. I think Babel died in 37. There were worse fates, but he was able to get exiled to, to Paris in 1931 uh, through the intercession of a guy named Maxim Gorky. Maxim Gorky was sort of the pioneer and major exponent of the Soviet style called socialist realism. Mm-hmm. Nadezhda Mandelstam calls him the boss of Soviet literature. And he had Stalin's ear. But it's quite amazing because Zamyatin was very forthright in his letter to Stalin. I mean, not simply because he described this campaign of um, what he called a manhunt unprecedented in Soviet literature. You know, he couldn't get published. His publications were removed from libraries and syllabi, and it just sort of he was disappeared, right? But he wrote to Stalin, and uh, he said that he had earned a criminal name uh, because he chose quote, to serve great ideas in literature without cringing before little men, end quote. That's <laughs> something you might not want to say to Stalin, but it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, which little man is he talking about? But it worked. But he went to Paris, and um, I don't you know, if you read like uh, Cheswav Miwash, I know you, you're familiar with, with him and his book, The Captive Mind, and he talks about, how difficult it is to be in exile. You know, mm-hmm. Miwash wrote in Polish and not to be able to write in your language for your people is very difficult. So Zamyatin was very lonely in Paris and he, he died of heart disease in 1937 at the age of 53. Do you uh, happen to know if there were Russian presses abroad that, that published editions of We, which then might have been smuggled back into to the Soviet Union? I mean, did, did, did Russian readers in the Soviet Union have any access in Sami's dot to to the novel before 1988 or that's interesting i what i gather is that this czech translation that appeared in 27 ended up in the hands of russians i can't speak to whether russians are able to read czech i would assume in general they can't but there's no question that the novel started um, circulating and it was published in russian outside of the soviet union I don't have it in front of me. I think it was in the 1950s, but the probability that there were Sami's dot versions that were available is high. And also, you know, the fact is that people read the manuscript. I mean, that's why the campaign began against him. So that manuscript itself probably was reproduced and right, passed right. around. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sure our, our listeners, you know, most of them, quite confident will have uh, read and, and thought about Brave New World in, in 1984, but there's probably a good chance that many of them might not even have heard of Zamyatin or We. I mean, some of them might know of it because it's often, I think, spoken of as, as being influential on Orwell. So I think in a way, We fits to a T kind of the purpose of, of this podcast, right, to, to kind of resurrect books that had been forgotten. So maybe just introduce the book by telling us why, you know, why it's worth reading. Why should it be rediscovered and and read? Yeah, well, you know, you you mentioned Orwell and Huxley. And Orwell, in fact, reviewed We in its French translation in 47, I think, before, or no, I, I think it was like 45 or something, but it was before he wrote 1984. And there are a lot of similarities between the books he was clearly influenced by it. But we is in a class by itself because, you know. So you think it's a better better novel than, than 1984? Well, you know, 1984 is a great novel. 
The thing about Zamyatin is he's most unusual because this is a scientist. He's mathematically educated. As I said, he designed icebreakers. And in we, mathematics plays a large role, astronomy, geology, magnetism. These are not heavy themes, but they're elevated to kind of poetic images and maybe even anthropological images. Because the other thing about Zamyatin is he's not just an accomplished scientist. He's a very accomplished poet. And the book itself is subtle and dense. It's interesting. It's not, you know, when if I say, uh, Flag, uh, let's talk about Russian novels, you probably rightly would think of things like War and Peace, you know, or Brothers Karamazov, we're talking 800 page or, or longer books. This is 230 pages in translation, something like that. But he had a very fertile and powerful poetic imagination. And so what happens in the book is that actually Inui, which tells the story of a dystopian state set six centuries in the future, basically, or six centuries after a major world war that destroys 80% of the population, and there's this one state, right? It's a totalitarian state. In the book, over the course of the book, we see the conflict, in particular, in the case of the protagonist, whose name is D503, if that's a name, between the mathematical, logical, abstract, formula-producing mind and the poetic mind and imagination. Another way to put it is, the mathematical side is also associated with, say, the aggression of the mastery and possession of nature that Descartes first speaks about in the Discourse on Method. And that's what, if to use a platonic term, is a, is a kind of thumatic enterprise, a spirited enterprise. Poetry is erotic in the platonic sense. You know, it's open to the world. So the character experiences love and attachments that he had never felt before. And there's a struggle in his soul between these, these parts. So I, I don't know of any other book. I can think of other authors who are scientists. Primo Levi's a good example. He was a chemist, you know, he's sent to Auschwitz and he's also a great writer, but I don't know of any other book that brings together in quite the same way, mathematics and poetry. I mean, you'd have to go back to say Plato's Republic or something mm -hmm. to find it, something comparable. So let's let's dive into the plot a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that it's set in this one state, this universal regime. The characters all have uh, a number and a consonant or, or vowel. The, the men are consonants with the number and the women are vowels with the number. Let's just talk about the plot of the novel. What what do we know about D five hundred three, and you know how does he sort of how do what do we learn about him as we make our way through the book? Yeah, so as you said, the, the men are consonants, the women are vowels. This is actually an old thing. It goes back to the Greeks. The men are odd numbers, the women are even numbers. This is a Pythagorean association, actually. Why would females be even numbers? Because they can divide, they can reproduce. I'm sure you know D503 and his best friend R13, those are both prime numbers. But in any case, uh, which is interesting because that's sort of uniqueness. Mm -hmm. So D503 is the builder of the integral. And what is the integral? This is fantastic. The integral is a spaceship that will bring propaganda to the cosmos. And D503 imagines, you know, uh, sooty Uranians and red-cheeked Venusians and stuff like this. 
and to bring the rest of the cosmos under the beneficent yoke of the one state. This is a very, this is like the Tower of Babel, right? This is a Promethean project. Uh, it's not enough just to govern the world. Although I should say right now, the one state is surrounded by a green wall and outside the green wall in the wild uncultivated regions are these savages, these sort of primitive human beings who have lots of body hair and so forth. Right. But it, so they don't even control the world, right? But they have this project of sending the integral up. I mean, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but it is, I think, important to understand this plot. Even in the one state, there are secret revolutionaries, people with poetic souls who long for freedom and who oppose these mathematical tyranny of the one state. And one of them, a character named I-330, who's very attractive and mysterious, approaches D-503, and he becomes involved with her, basically falls in love with her. And at the same time as he's being manipulated by I-330, I mean, he, he doesn't realize that he's being manipulated by these revolutionaries. And there is some question in the book as to whether I-330 is merely using him, that she is using him for sure, is beyond question. The revolutionaries want to seize the integral because the integral itself is this big, powerful spaceship, and they think they can use it as a weapon against the one state. So, so that's sort of the, the plot of the book. Now, what happens is that D-503, through falling in love and being drawn into illicit activities, by the way, by I-330. For example, at one point, she smokes a cigarette, forbidden, and drinks something that's probably absinthe, forbidden. Uh, but he doesn't report her. Every number has a duty to report all infractions. So then she's got him, you know, because he didn't report and she can report that he didn't report and so forth. Um, so he's kind of drawn into their web and he starts cracking up. He begins to discover another D503 inside of him. I'll say one more thing and then pause so we can talk about this a little more. But the book itself is D503's diary, right? The very first, and it has 40 entries, biblical number. And in the first entry, he says, I just read the One State Gazette, and it's calling for tracks that will express the beauty of the One State to be put on the integral, right? And so I'm going to do this, and it's going to be my diary. It's going to be this honest thing. But we see right away in the very first entry, and this is, in, in, at least in, in the translation that I'm using, uh, which is by Mira Ginsburg. Uh, I think it's a very good one. That's faithful to the Russian because almost every single paragraph in this first entry in which D503 says, I'm going to celebrate the one state, begins with the word I, you know, and he says, you know, I don't, I'm going to write this diary and it feels like this must be what uh, the feeling that a woman with a child in her womb feels, you know, this little beating heart inside of her. And he's got this beautiful poetic expression for what he's going to do here. And of course, poetry is very much at odds, as I said, with the one state. So the whole thing's set up from the beginning and it works out in very interesting ways. So I think we can say with some confidence, right, that there, from the very outset of the book, D-503 portrayed in any other way than a, than a believer in this imperial enterprise. As you said, he's the builder of the integral. Presumably they would wouldn't have given him this great responsibility if they didn't have confidence that he, he was a believer in this enterprise. What does the book say about his 
I guess I would I would call it his his sort of self discovery that that he, and as you say, he he begins the diary and he expects it to be part of this propaganda package, which will sell the wonders of the one state to these people in other parts of the universe, but very quickly through the act of writing, he comes to realize parts of himself that he, you know, understands not to quite fit within this regime's project. Um, so I guess that's my, my first question is what, why and how does that happen? Is it just kind of the act of writing and, and thinking about this enterprise that leads him to contemplate aspects of exist of his existence that he really hadn't considered before? Um, or is it more this relationship with I-330 that moves him down this kind of heterodox path? How are we to explain his increasing experimentation, right, with heterodox thoughts and, and actions? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, to some extent, the book leaves it open. But let me say at the outset, it's very clear to me that Zamyatin had read Plato. Because they're just, they're, uh, I mentioned Plato's Republic earlier, and, and that really is, on one level, a kind of working out of the relationship between mathematical thought and erotic openness. And of course, for Plato, for those who've read the symposium, we start with, a, with an attraction to the physical beauty of another human being, and then we're drawn to the soul and finally to virtues and intellectual you know, ideas and so on and so forth. I think you put your finger on something important, Flag. Number one, he falls in love with I-330. And I have to be careful here. He develops a more than sexual attraction for her. And why do I just say more than sexual attraction? Because in this state, there is something called the lex sexualis, <laughs> which is that every number has a right to every other number as to a sexual commodity. There aren't families, there aren't marriages. This is very platonic and you know, this is Plato's Republic. And, and you can use anyone you want. And what this does is- You have to they apply out, for a sex ticket. Is that right? Yep, you, don't yep. they, they sort of, they, uh, do they do an analysis of your hormone levels and they decide how many sex days per, per year you need or something? Exactly, and, right. exactly. And they have a mathematical formula for happiness and it's quite reductive. Happiness equals bliss divided by envy. Uh, bliss is understood as sexual bliss and envy is envy, sexual envy. And the right of any number to any other number reduces envy to zero. So if you reduce the denominator to zero, then happiness becomes infinite. This doesn't actually work out because, for example, D503 is involved in a relationship with someone named O90. And O90 becomes jealous of his relationship with I330. Or, for instance, there's a character named Yu who's out of modesty. She's an older female. D doesn't ever give us her number. But you becomes interested in uh, D503 sexually, and it repulses him. You know, so this is not exactly a formula for happiness. But but the other part of it is that the act of writing itself is very very important. And he's writing this. Actually, it's really brilliant on Zamyatin's part because at one point D503, who again is writing the diary to put on the integral, he, he says, "I, I have a, the most difficult writing task in history because." Some people write for the contemporaries. I'm writing for my ancestors. And what he means by that is, you know, these primitive Venusians or something are going to read this stuff. 
And he's got to explain for people who have no idea what the one state is, you know, about his life. So the act of writing is a very intimate thing. And he pours himself forth on the page. And I think that transforms him as well. Yeah, that seems to be, I mean, obviously there's a strong connection to Orwell there too, with Winston Smith deciding to to write a, a diary. The other interesting thing that I noticed about the novel, rereading it, is the number of times where D-503 says something to the effect in his diary of, I'll have difficulty remembering if this was a dream or if it actually happened. <laughs> right? And, and maybe the act of yeah. writing, he thinks, helps him clarify the, the distinction. And, and there, I think, Zemyatin is prophetic. And I mean, I think Orwell saw that, right? Because one of the things you learn reading different accounts of totalitarian regimes is the sort of loss of time, right? That Havel has this, Václav Havel has this great essay called Stories and Totalitarianism, mm. where he talks about there being no, no real history. You're not allowed to have genuine historical moments, right? All, everything is, revolves around these kind of fake historical moments constructed by the party with the effect that everything becomes kind of routine and timeless and every year is just like another year. And, and you can imagine this weird sense of time where you're not even sure anymore what's real and what's not. Everyone seems to be going through the motions. And, you know, the fact that Zemyatin seems to have seen this, you know, in 1920 is <laughs> just kind of astonishing. Yeah. One of the big themes in the book is energy and entropy. This actually goes back to Dostoevsky. It goes back to Marx, you know. So Marx writes that, you know, communism is the solution to the riddle of history. Once you solve the riddle of history, there's a sense in which nothing happens, right? You've come to a stage like all of history has been working out these tensions. And then let's say the Marxian idea we arrive at the communist society and all the relations are sort of in equilibrium and we're back in this kind of earthly Eden. So entropy, actually D503 is a big fan of entropy because he's, he's bought into the one state and there's a sort of big debate about energy and entropy that flares up once in a while between IT30 and D503. It, this actually bears on, on an anthropological question. At one point D503 says something like, Man is man only when there are no more questions left, when everything's been solved. There's a quotation from Dostoevsky, he wrote a letter to his brother in which he expressed the opposite point of view. Man is a mystery, that mystery must be puzzled out. And if you spend your whole life doing so, then don't say that you've wasted your time. I occupy myself with that mystery because I want to be a man. So the, the very occupation with the mystery, the unsolved problem of man, represents something like erotic energy, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I say that D503 is a believer, one of the powerful things about Zemyatin's book is it convey he's, he's, he's a believer in mathematics. And what I mean by that is the book conveys the beauty of mathematics. It really does. And it, for those who have a reasonable level of mathematical education, it comes across very strongly, you know? So j just for example, the way math works in the book, in the very first entry, when he's just gotten the one state, because I had, and he's going to start writing, the, writing this diary, he says, 
But of course, my diary will only be a derivative of the life of the one state, right? And he means that in a mathematical sense. So as we know, the derivative of x squared, right, is 2x. It's the slope of the line. And so all of a sudden you get this idea that an individual is a point in this movement of the state, but it's the movement of the state itself that is the most fundamental thing. But, you know, D503 isn't just the derivative. He himself is set in motion. And that leads to the self-discovery that you talked about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe we can connect that to this theme that, that emerges quite quickly in the book. Happiness, right, versus freedom. Seems like the mm-hmm. regime has, has discovered uh, that those two things are antithetical. And so if you are a regime that dedicates itself to happiness, then you must construct an unfree regime. And so they don't, they don't think twice. This goes back to Dostoevsky as well, the Grand Inquisitor in The Brothers Karamazov. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with it, but Jesus comes back to earth in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. The Grand Inquisitor, who's been burning people at the stake, arrests Jesus, tells him he's going to burn him at the stake the next day. You have no right to come back and so forth. And the charge that he makes against Jesus is that freedom produces misery. And the reason it produces misery is people fight and there's bloodshed and there's sort of just chaos. In we, it's set, as I mentioned, after this big world war that wiped out eight-tenths of the population of the population of the world. That's like Brave New World, by the way, because you've got these three regimes, you know, East Asia, Eurasia, Oceania, and, and that's in the aftermath of this big war, right, that's decimated, ruined cities and so forth. And in Dostoevsky, the Grand Inquisitor basically says, look, there's bloodshed, there will be more bloodshed and so forth, and finally we'll figure out that freedom produces misery. There is, of course, an exception from the Grand Inquisitor's point of view, and that's those few free human beings who can freely choose to follow Jesus out of their own love, their own choice. But most human beings need to be controlled. And there is also this logic that if you, these regimes don't like the Declaration of Independence hold out the prospect of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They want to deliver the goods. Right. Uh, and, and, and so there's a sense in which all of these regimes, it goes back to Marx, view politics as a problem to which there is a solution. And of course, the solution is totalitarianism. So you want happiness, you got to have a totalitarian society. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the strongest connection to Huxley's novel, right? I think it's Helmholtz. I can't remember the character, but at some point in, in Brave New World, or maybe it's John the Savage, I want unhappiness. I want the right to be unhappy. I, I, I think it's even more explicit in, in Brave New World. So, so one thing we didn't mention, uh, I think, in, in our, our uh, articulation of some of the, the plot, one thing the, the regime has is what they call a personal hour. And then you mentioned also the, the pink tickets, right? That you, can, you have a right to, to any sexual partner you want. But presumably, you can choose, as, as evidenced by the fact that D503 and O90 have this recurring relationship, it seems like you're, you, you can choose to have a, a sexual encounter with the same partner 
over and over. And that plus the personal hours, does this suggest that the regime really hasn't solved the problem of, of Eros? They yeah. have to make this concession that there's a personal hour and they kind of let people choose repeating partners. I mean, that, that suggests to me that they haven't quite satisfactorily solved the, the problem of, of erotic longing. For sure. So D503's childhood friend and continues to be his friend in this novel, although he ends up <laughs> viewing him as a rival, is this poet, R13. He views him as a rival because R13, he finds out at one point, has a relationship with I-330. And one of the new feelings that D-503 has is jealousy, real jealousy. But R-13 is also registered to O. And at one point, D-503 says, O and I and R-13, we're a family. Now, see, they don't have families in the one state, just as they don't have families in Plato's Republic. But in Plato's Republic, Children are reared in, in pens and herds. In we, they're reared in the child-rearing factory, you see. So it's a kind of update. Mm -hmm. And so the very, you know, to say, like, we're a family. This is a residue. You know, this is an old word. It's an outmoded concept. But it's a reality in this society. So, no, they haven't solved the problem. Now, Table of Ours is very interesting because... You know, where else do we see a table of hours? Well, we see it in like Benedictine monasteries and stuff, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And this is another dimension of we I want to bring in. And that is that actually at one point D503 says the Christians are our truest ancestors. But by Christians, by the way, he doesn't mean Jesus Christ who came to offer a paradigmatic example for human beings and hoped to be freely embraced through the choice you know, of, of, through free human choice and appeal to individual conscience and so forth. He means like Grand Inquisitor Christianity, right? Yeah. You know? and, and in fact, there are all these religious ceremonies in the one state. Um, so there's this incredible passage where there's going to be a punishment and somebody who has, you know, a, a madman who wrote verses opposed to the one state will be punished and there's a kind of church gathering of all the citizens, or at least a large portion of them. And the benefactor, who's this kind of, uh, there's a cult of personality around the benefactor. This is, again, a platonic word, almost. Um, uh, actually, it's a, it's a Dostoevskian word. He speaks of benefactors as well. Um, but, you know, the one state also has guardians and stuff like this. So you can see the death to Plato. Anyway, the guy's brought in, and he is chemically reduced to pure water. That's his punishment, which is fantastic. Because the principle of the one state is absolute transparency, right? Absolute transparency. The whole place is made of glass. The integral is made of glass. The glass, D503 points out, is as hard as diamonds, right? And so there's this hardness. But the problem is during that one hour every day, there's a personal hour, right? Maybe it's one or two, but they get to lower their shades in their glass apartment. Right. And the one thing that they can't see is inside the soul. It's very interesting. I mean, O90, for example, she wants to have a child, but she's below the maternal norm, so she can't. From the outside, she looks like a cheerful citizen, but she, and by the way, all the other main characters in the novel are compromised uh, through Eros. They are engaged in liaisons, and their love or attraction for other numbers causes them to break the law in one way or another. 
Mm-hmm. Same thing in Plato's Republic. The, the whole thing breaks down. I don't know if you remember book seven, you know, they're like, we have this nuptial number and there's a whole kind of thing as in the one state where, you know, only certain people can mate to reproduce, right? You can have plenty of sex, but, you know, you know, only certain people can reproduce. And it turns out some people had sex with people they shouldn't have had sex with and the whole thing breaks down. Right, right. <laughs> What about, I guess maybe we should continue the, the plot and move it forward mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, to what extent does uh, D-503 ally himself with this revolutionary movement, the Mephi? Does he ever become a full-blown member of it? What happens to him as a result of his involvement with it? Yeah. I mean, there's no official, he doesn't sort of swear an oath or anything like that. Right. The book, the diary reflects his inner transformation and his sensibilities change. I should go back and say he is schizophrenic. And actually you mentioned dreams. And by the way, he never dreams before he encounters I-330. That is the first, I mean, he actually has a dream. He's like, this is the first one I ever had, you know, and, and he goes back and forth, you know, and he's like, Oh, I was crazy yesterday, but today, you know, I look at the beauty of, I mean, for example, at one point, uh, a, a machine, I guess the integral, they're, they're building it right in. And I think there's like a ignition test and 10 numbers are just burned to death. And he's like, I'm proud to say I'm paraphrasing. Like nobody batted an eye, right. you know, because 10, 10 numbers is less than a hundred millionth of the entire population of the one state. And that's the way it should be. Right. Cause they have this utilitarian calculus. Footnote, by the way, earlier in the book, we're told that there are 10 million numbers. Now we're told there are a billion numbers. It's very strange. (laughs) It's like this, maybe you can't even count it. Like even that breaks up. But then later in the book, he's in love with I-330. And at some point, the one state gets concerned about these revolutionaries. They know they're there. And there is a square of officials with electric whips walking down the street who are constantly zapping the prisoner in the middle of the square and he thinks she's i-330 and he rushes forward and says like release her or something like this right and then it turns out it's not i-330 and then somebody says like they grab him and they say well why were you running to her and he said i was saying you know grab her hold her or something (laughs) and someone else says no you didn't you didn't say that you know so he almost gets in really big trouble there but this is a reflection of this kind of new moral sympathy right i mean what the one state wants is for you to look and say, if 10 dudes are killed by fire, forget about it. You know, they're replaceable. They're just a small fraction. But what he begins to feel is that individual is infinitely valuable. And I'm going to, it's also spontaneous, by the way, there's no calculation. That's the other important. At one point he is taken outside of the green wall. Now what's the green wall? Well, as I said, they're wild and uncultivated uh, regions and he's taken outside the green wall. Um, in the company of I-330, and he encounters the primitive beings outside. And the revolutionary group, by the way, is called Mephi, which obviously has echoes of Mephistopheles. And we can begin to understand that by sort of this opposition to structural Christianity that wants to burn people at the stake and so forth, right? But in any case, he it's, it's beautifully described. I mean, D-503 says, I tell you, I walked and there was this green spongy stuff 
I mean, you can't believe it. It, it. it wasn't like flat, like the stuff we walk on. He's describing grass, right? Right. And this whole, and this world of sensation and sunlight, because the sun is sort of filtered in the one state. And they have something called an accumulator tower, which if there's going to be storms, it accumulates all the electricity. So there's no storm. Every day is the same. You know? um, and it's just this blooming, buzzing confusion. But he is really unknowingly serving the revolutionaries. He finally figures it out. And unfortunately, he's turned in. And he's turned in by a very important character named Yu. Yu is an older woman I mentioned before, and she works at the child rearing factory. She really, of all the characters, represents the state. So, for example, he's repulsed by her because he says, she, she reminds me of a fish. She's got these sagging jowls that look like gills. And at one point she says, you know, I came into the kids at the child rearing factory and they had drawn a character of me as a fish. So of course I reported them to the guardians. And then later on, she takes those children to what's called the great operation. The great operation is the one state's effort, sort of last ditch effort to stop the revolutionaries. And that is operation that excises your imagination. And she tells D503, you, you says to him, the, the highest form of love is cruelty. You know, <laughs> so uh, it's you who has been secretly reading his diaries because she's like the check-in person at the desk in his building. And, right. And, and uh, But she doesn't report him. That's a crime. She doesn't report him because she doesn't want him to be upset with her because she wants him to love her. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the whole thing falls apart. The, ad, the ending is quite tragic uh, because uh, D-503 is seized and subjected to the operation and I-330 is tortured in something called the gas chamber where they remove all the air and produce a vacuum repeatedly. But she never gives up any of her co-conspirators. Um, yeah, you mentioned this operation and what they, what the state decides that it, it you know, the, the reason that it identifies that people start behaving in these heterodox ways. So this is in record 16. Someone says to him, you're in bad shape. It looks like you're developing a soul. <laughs> Uh, and he says, a soul, this, that strange, ancient, long-forgotten word. We sometimes used expressions like soul mate, body and soul, soul destroying, and so on. But soul, that's very dangerous, I murmured. In, in your translation, does is that appear as imagination? No, no. That, oh, okay. that, that's, it's very close to what you said. Oh, okay. it, this is a very comic scene. I mean, so there, there's this doctor, you know, who's examining him, and he says, yeah, it's a you know, this is a problem. <laughs> and another doctor comes in and he says that one, he says in my translation, uh, he comes in to sort of consult. And he says, curious, most curious. Listen, says to D503, would you consent to being preserved in alcohol? <laughs> and, the, and the other guy says, actually, he's the builder of the integral. So you, know, you kind of have to leave him alone for now. Right. But <laughs> sort of, a lot of this book is really funny. And in fact, laughter is super important. At one point, D503 once he finds out that you has turned in I-330, he wants to kill her. To save his manuscript, he's, he's stuck it in a, in, a, in a lead tube, and he's going to beat her brains out with a lead tube. But you thinks, oh, he wants to rape me, <laughs> you know? And she's like, oh, don't, you know, whatever. And he just cracks up. And then he goes to visit the benefactor. The benefactor is someone he couldn't even bear to look at in the past, you know? And he spoke with his deep voice and his heavy godlike hands and all this, and... And he just starts laughing at him because he realizes this guy is just a little bald dude with sweat on his head, you know? Right. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. But the soul thing is fantastic. I mean, the, the, um, 
the self-discovery is, is really remarkable. And, and, and the doctor who diagnoses him, he says, well, what's the soul? He says, well, you know, consider this mirror over here. It's glad it's hard and it reflects images. But imagine if the mirror became soft and everything on the surface was absorbed and, and became internalized in the mirror and, and, and would never leave you. It's always inside. And he says, yes, yes, that's my illness. You know, um, I, one of my favorite passages is earlier on, uh, I three thirty is smoking a cigarette and she takes a big bunch of absinthe in her mouth and she kisses him and pushes all the absinthe into him. And he's never had alcohol before. And he says, I started like a planet. I broke away. I was spinning, you know, and all this. And it's around there where he says, you never think of it, but here you walk on this hard surface, the earth. And actually right underneath this crust is like molten lava. You know, it's this seething and so these are the feelings he's got. Like he can't control himself. I mean, he's dreaming. And at one point he strikes I three uh, strikes R13 because he's carrying I330 away from this dangerous situation and he punches him, you know. And who is this guy? You know, this savage who's who's breaking out from the inside of him. And, and he uses images like planets in a regular orbit that suddenly just spin off. They just they just go off into outer space, you know. I'm just trying to get at maybe what we think Zemyatin has in mind specifically by including the the word soul. Is he trying to contrast that with mathematical reason whereby you, you know, design this language that you can then use to measure and impose upon the world, but soul somehow allows for the receiving of of the world? Um, you know, you, you can be a kind of witness, a, a more passive witness to, to reality where you're not imposing, but you're sort of letting, letting the world and reality impose itself on, on you and being a kind of receptacle. Yes, but I, the way it's presented in the book, so, I mean, that, that's certainly part of it, that whole mirror image thing, right, and that you internalize things and they become part of you forever. That's there, but even more strongly is that the soul let me put it this way, is a border beyond which mathematical reason cannot step. So the, the idea is that we can control everything mathematically, right? But it turns out there are these mathematical concepts that are extremely disturbing. D503, when he learns in school, and I should say, by the way, this actually sort of has a horrible echo for today, right? All teaching is mediated. Um, machines speak. Uh, he learns mathematics from a machine called Plapla. What do they call it? The kids call them Plapla because they stick spitballs in the mouth of this machine. And, and, and when it tries to speak, it goes, pop, 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 you know, and the spitballs come out, right? So these naughty kids. Actually, the children are very important in this book, right? Because, right. you know, they haven't yet. They're sort of wild and, they, and they, they laugh and they make pictures of the teacher who looks like a fish and stuff. They haven't had it beaten out of them, right? But in any case, when he learns the concept of the square root of negative one, which is an imaginary number, and, and you know, what's the square root of negative one? Well, it's got to be simultaneously positive and negative, right? Because one times negative one equals negative one. That's, but a square root is a number that multiplied by itself, right? You know, that yields that number. So, so he cries. He freaks out. He can't stand it. Um, he doesn't like irrational numbers because irrational numbers cannot be represented by a ratio of whole numbers. So... The soul is compared to the square root of negative one. 
And I-330, by the way, she's got this striking face. You can sort of see her. Got a very kind of angular face. I'm sure she had high cheekbones, whatever. And he sees a kind of X in her face. At one point, he calls it a cross, which is, again, the religious imagery. He sees her as an X in an irresolvable equation. He sees her as a problem. And his approach to I-330, who is very mysterious, right, is to try to, as it were, solve her in a mathematical or quasi-mathematical way, right? To, as it were, get her number, if I can put it that way. And he can't. He can't for the same reason. So <laughs> in Plato's Republic, Socrates says about Callipolis, the ideal mathematical regime, that um, what, what the regime does is it rationalizes these irrational numbers that are the soul. And also the soul is compared to the square root of negative two uh, in a dialogue called the statesman as well. So already Plato had this idea that what a kind of, let's say, totalizing or totalitarian politics wants to do is to make everything rational. But that which is intrinsically not rationalizable mathematically can only be distorted when you do that. So there's a sense in which what D503 is discovering is his own square root of negative one inside him. You see what I mean? Um, and themes of infinity, well, how's an irrational number compared to infinity? Well, an irrational number, if you, if you write it decimally, it never ends, right? Like pi. Um, the theme of infinity, infinitude is really important because at, in one of the very last entries, entry 39, the whole place is broken down in chaos. It's insanity. He goes underground to the tube, you know, the subway. And a guy grabs him by the lapels basically and says, I have a proof that the universe is finite. You know, <laughs> and, he, and he tries to explain to him, you know, why it's finite. And it's very interesting. It's like it, it, he raises the question of why is the night sky all light? It's infinite. We know that the density of the universe is not zero because we see planets and, sky, and we see stars out there. So it's got to be finite because otherwise. So, so, why is this guy, this lunatic, who's been driven crazy by the chaos, trying to prove to him that he's got a mathematical proof of the infinitude of the universe? Because everybody wants to think that they can control infinity, which, for example, the calculus does. Yeah, so that's sort of the way I would begin to approach yeah. it. Yeah, that's a striking. Yeah, they have to have operations to remove <laughs> remove souls. Um, I guess which, the one which I should say. Go ahead. If I can just interject here, you know. The operation doesn't actually work completely because in entry 40, after the operation, you know, D503 says, uh, I feel like a kind of splinter has been removed from my head. Well, that's a, that's an image. That's imagination. Right. So it's like, it doesn't quite, even the operation doesn't work. Yeah. Getting close to maybe some concluding thoughts, but one, one more question that, or detail I thought we might throw out there before we get to that. We, we haven't mentioned the fact this weird thing called the ancient house, mm. right? Where he first meets I-330. So it seems to be a house that's kind of on the, the border of the, of the city. And it's eventually where I-330 helps D-503 find his way through tunnels to the outside of the wall. But I guess I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on what this, this ancient house is, is doing. In the book. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting because in Huxley's Brave New World, right, there's a savage reservation where this character John comes from that you mentioned. So there's a, and you know, you can be a tourist from Oceania, you know, this totalitarian state, you can be a tourist and go visit the savage, savage reservation. 
I should say, incidentally, Huxley claimed that he was not. Orwell said Huxley must have been influenced by Wee, and Huxley said, no, 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 no. But but here is a point of comparison because they have this thing called the ancient house, and, and it's it's an it's an old fashioned house, right? Where you know there are rooms with just furniture sitting around and so forth, and it's not made of glass and not all these glass, things. Yeah, yeah, right. And 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 they preserve the ancient ways in other contexts too. So I three thirty turns out to be a pianist, and they go to the auditorium and first they play the uh, the mathematical music of the one state. And then they say, now we're going to show the ridiculous music that this replaced. And she gets up, she plays Scriabin, right? And it has a very powerful effect on D503. So she's associated with music and kind of, you know, Scriabin is this kind of wild, uh, certainly in comparison with kind of atonal music or whatever they have in the one state. At one point, D says, seems to me that the ancient house is the, is the sort of point from which everything in this, in this diary starts, right? And uh, I think it's interesting. I'm not entirely sure why the one state decides to preserve it. You see, that's a question we might ponder. I, but they do. And I mean, maybe it's a way of indicating that, you know, you can't get rid of the ancient stuff. So, for example, I-330 says, I see you've got hairy hands, D-503. And he says, I mean, he was always ashamed of his hairy hands, right? R-13 is described in this translation as having sort of full negroid lips, right? And he's, he's kind of had this kind of wildness in his physical characteristics. Um, so either those are residues that haven't yet been, even after 600 years, kind of purged out through eugenics and so forth, or uh, we're also told that the wild folk outside the wall have mated people inside the city. You see, again, sex, eros. And these may be traits that they inherited from them. You, you, you cannot extirpate the squared of negative one. You cannot extirpate the wild internal character of the soul. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, maybe some concluding thoughts. What, do you have any theories about why Zemyatin's novel, We, has, has not continued to mm. be embraced as, as widely as, as uh, Brave New World in 1984? I mean, I, I suppose it's, I mean, my first thought is I, I don't think it's as easy to read in the sense that it's in a weird way, it's very compact, mm -hmm. but, but also, you know, leaves the reader to fill in a lot of the, the details, you know, so it strikes me that it might, it might be a more difficult read and that it leaves more work for the reader maybe than, mm -hmm. than 1984, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think for the reasons that you give, it's a very powerful book. So just, just curious as to why you think it's uh, languished in, in some obscurity by comparison to these two other dystopian works. Yeah, I mean, it is compact, and Zamyatin is a poet, and there's something about poetry that lends itself to compactness. And the reader does have to read actively. He doesn't spell stuff out. I So I would say that it's a sort of moderately difficult book. I really don't want listeners to think, oh, this sounds like it's too difficult. It's funny, though, because somebody I know on Facebook said, oh, by the way, I read this book, We. She said, you know, it's kind of dry, but it's important, right? And I said, it's not dry. <laughs> it's actually not dry. <laughs> but I think what she was sort of pointing to, you have to read it slowly because you got to think about what's happening. And it's very easy to sort of, the first time, you know, sort of read a couple sentences or paragraphs and say, ah, but everything has sort of deeper meaning or deeper connection with, with what's come before or perhaps foreshadowing. But, you know, it's got these wonderful images. I mean, just, just to go back to my point about you can't get rid of the square of negative one, 
you can't control nature. So there's this fantastic scene where they're marching along, you know, uh, or I, maybe it happened in the past, but the numbers are marching along in their columns. And by the way, they're all shaved heads. They look like, and they wear uniforms. They look like uh, what the Russians, the Soviets called Zeks, which are prisoners. And a meteorite comes screaming and smoking out of the sky and goes, blam, right in the middle of this march, right? It's a great symbol, you know? I mean, you, you can control everything. You're not going to control meteorites. You're just, you, you, no time, you're just going to show up. Bang. And that's nature. And the book is suffused with like, the second entry is like spring, you know? You lick the pollen off your lips, which has come over the green wall, you know? And for some reason, you think of women and stuff like that. But then, you know, and then, and then you know, O90 says to him, something like, it's a beautiful spring day. And he's like, ah, oh, spring. Women talk about spring, you know? But, but there's this, this, like, you can't keep the stuff out. You add the smells and the scents and so forth. And those kinds of, like, beautiful details are just, I, I think, extremely inviting. And, you know... Brave New World is a, is a very, I mean, I, Brave New World and 1984 are, are much more sort of straightforward. Orwell, of course, is an incredible writer, and Huxley is too. This is a different kind of book, but it's, in my view, probably the best dystopian science fiction novel that we have. Well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, well, Jake, this has been wonderful, and um, I hope readers are inspired and listeners are inspired to go pick up this great book and they can judge for themselves whether how it compares to 1984 and, and Brave New World. And I hope readers will go to your website and also check out the new criterion and, and uh, read your essay on the book. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Flag. It's great. been great talking to you. Sounds thanks. great. See you, Jake. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.